0: We're going to continue our series in the Ten Commandments now. We're going to take some time to study the Bible together. We do this every week because we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. And so we are now in this series trying to find Jesus in the Ten Commandments. We'll be in the book of Exodus. So if you want to turn to Exodus chapter 20, you can read the Ten Commandments with us there, Exodus chapter 20. um, And it can be found on page 61 in the black Bibles that you'll see in the chairs in front of you. So I encourage you to grab one of those and open up and follow along with us. Exodus chapter 20, finding Jesus in the Ten Commandments. And this week we are going out of order because it is uh, what's observed by a lot of churches, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. So I'm skipping to the sixth commandment. We should be on the third, but I'm skipping to the sixth commandment today. So Uh, linear people, I'm very sorry. It's no big deal to me. Like My brain's out of order anyway, but I know for you, it's going to kind of fritz you out a little bit. We'll go back and do the rest of them in order, I promise, okay? So from now on, the rest of them will be in order, but we're doing the sixth commandment today. Do not murder. Do not murder. I I think that this might be one where you're tempted to shut off your brain. Uh, You're tempted to think, hey, I haven't murdered anybody. I'm good, right? Um, But Jesus takes this much deeper and makes this a heart sin. And so uh, we want to recognize, and we'll get to that in detail later, that Jesus says, you know what, we're all guilty to some degree. The Ten Commandments themselves represent God's perfect standards, his holiness, and the Ten Commandments are a statement of God's moral law saying, this is what I require of human beings. This is what it looks like to be fully human, to live according to my design, And so we're all guilty. And Romans 3 tells us that when we look into the law seriously, when we're willing to be honest, it points out sin. It points out that we've failed to meet God's standards and shows us that all people are guilty, whether you're liberal or conservative, whether you grew up in a church or out of a church, we're all guilty before God. None of us measure up to his standards, but we can all find forgiveness and grace and life through Jesus, through what he's done for us. And so that's part of the roadmap for us seeing Jesus through the Ten Commandments. Uh, before we read our verse, and I think this is on record as the shortest sermon text I've ever read, okay? So I'm kind of excited about this. Um, it's a record-breaking sermon here. Uh, but before I read my short verse, I wanted to share with you an experience I had many years ago. Back in my 20s, I was going to seminary, graduate school to study the Bible, to be able to teach the Bible to other people, um, and my best friends started a rock band, And they were really good. I mean, they were really good. Like, I thought they were going to make it big, but they all kind of gave up the rock band to go on and be pastors. But these guys all started a rock band. These were some of my closest friends. I was in accountability groups with them. We prayed together. We had a small group together. Um, They started this fantastic band, and um, the hope was that eventually I could be part of the band and do performance art, because I wasn't really a musician, you know, so I was going to, like, grill on stage and hand out hamburgers while they perform. So anyway, but that's that's a sidebar. Um, but their, their first EP or their short album was a five-song album, and it was really good. And there was this one song that was probably the most catchy song on their album. It was called The One That I Adore. Um, but the song just grossed me out. The song disgusted me because it was one of those songs that you find yourself singing and enjoying and loving, but the main character of the song is a murderer, and my friend wrote that song on purpose. I mean, I asked him about it. I was like, How, "Like you're a Christian. How could you do that? Like, this is just gross. Why did you do that? You know, like, it just seems like a celebration of evil. And he said, well, I, I did the song on purpose. I wanted you to empathize with the murderer so that you could recognize that part in our own heart that we're all broken inside, right? That, but for the grace of God, go I. A, a lot of literature does this and it makes us uncomfortable. Um, and so I wouldn't necessarily recommend the song to you, but I would recommend the experience of recognizing, you know what? I may not have actually physically murdered someone, but there's that murderer in my own heart that I've got to face, that I've got to come to terms with. So let's read the text. It's Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. As I said, shortest text I've ever used for sermon. I'll read it one more time. (laughs) You shall not murder. Do not murder. Let me pray for us and ask the Lord to help us to understand this today. God, thank you for giving us your word. Thanks for giving us instruction. I pray that you'd help us to understand it um, and that you would convict our hearts, but that you wouldn't just leave us guilty, uh, but we would come to find freedom, release, redemption in you and your son, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So do not murder. Do not murder. As I said, Jesus takes it a lot deeper, but before we look at what Jesus does with do not murder, I want to start with just the basics of what it means, the Hebrew text, start there, kind of define things, so calling uh, this first section the basics of do not murder. What what does it mean very specifically? What does the word mean? The Hebrew word is ratzak, um, and the King James Version uh, didn't really do us any favors in translating it do not kill. Uh, because it really is more specific than do not kill. It is specifically do not take a life unlawfully. And so murder might be too specific, but kill is definitely too broad. It can mean murder or manslaughter. And murder and manslaughter are similar under the law, but we would make a distinction in English or in uh, American law, a distinction between murder being on purpose and manslaughter being accidental, right? So manslaughter is like if you accidentally kill someone, but you could have done something to prevent that. There was maybe your own foolishness or negligence involved. And then murder is when you, know, you do that on purpose, kill someone unlawfully. And so there is a distinction made in the Bible and the Hebrew text. Uh, Genesis 9 and Romans 13 reinforce that uh, what we would call capital punishment, the, the killing justly with the you know, jury and just, justice system, the killing of a killer or the killing of a criminal is different than murder. And so the concept of capital punishment is taught in Genesis chapter 9 and Romans 13. encourage you to check that out. I know some Christians by conviction still don't believe in capital punishment, but it's it, it's there in the Bibles. Um, so you have to kind of wrestle with those texts to get there. But murder is different. It's not do not kill, it's do not murder. Uh, you don't kill someone because they got in your way. You don't kill someone because you're angry at them. And that's really the heart of what the commandment is saying. So, the obvious one would be don't murder someone, don't kill someone because you're angry. The less obvious one is manslaughter, right? That's the other application of what this text means. Uh, don't commit manslaughter. So, an example of this in the Hebrew law that you can see in Exodus is the Israelites were commanded to have a parapet, is what it says in all translations. It's basically a railing around the roof of their house. And so, that is much like our. Laws today where if you have a pool in most cities, I think it probably varies from county to county and city to city, but in most cities, you are required by law to have a fence if you have a swimming pool. And that is to prevent someone from dying, a little kid from just jumping in your pool and drowning when no parent is watching, right? You, you have to have a fence to fence off your pool in most cities. In the same way, the Old Testament law had an application of do not murder or manslaughter was you gotta have a railing Around your balcony, right? The roofs of their houses were served as balconies. They would go up there and hang out and uh, enjoy themselves and enjoy the breeze. And so um, manslaughter, the idea is you've got to take basic precautions to protect life. Two really common ones today are drunk driving and texting while driving, right? Those are really obvious ones that we would deal with on a daily basis. You can't go get buzzed and then drive. Uh, You can't text while driving. And why is that? Well, because a A car is a big, powerful machine that can kill people. So you have to be very careful with that. So we set up laws to protect life. So that would be an application of this verse as well. Uh, Another one that is less clear is euthanasia. Euthanasia is where someone is struggling and in pain, uh, and we kill them so that they're no longer in pain. Uh, And the Bible doesn't allow that either. You could see where people would want to logically go go there. They want to relieve suffering. Um, but the Bible doesn't permit us to relieve suffering in that way. The Bible says, well, no, that's God's choice when someone uh, someone's life is going to end. He gets to make that final decision. Now, I would say on the other side of that, uh, we're in this extreme place with medical technology where we can keep people alive hooked up to machines almost indefinitely. Um, and that's not the same thing as euthanasia, right? Like unplugging somebody from something that is artificially keeping them alive is not the same thing as euthanasia. Euthanasia is where you... End of the life, right? You actively end of the life. Um, many people have these things you can sign that says, yeah, I really don't want to be kept alive on a machine for two years. You know, when it's time for me naturally to die, give me the dignity of natural death. Uh, so we need to make sure we don't confuse those two issues as well. The last one, though, is the most controversial, and that is abortion. Um, and more and more now that we're seeing with kind of statistics on millennials, more and more people are beginning to see abortion as actually killing, and most people believe that is because we have greater and greater technology where we can see the life in the womb. We have much more clear ultrasounds, much stronger technology where we can just see that that's a human life. There's this kind of common sense swing now uh, in the public debate on abortion. I grabbed a picture here of a baby, uh, an ultrasound of a child. Uh, The statistics vary, but the statistics are something like 90 to 98 percent of women who are considering an abortion, if they see an ultrasound of their baby, will not go through with it. Because just seeing that life, right? It's like seeing is believing for a lot of people. They're like, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a baby sucking its thumb, you know? I mean, it's just, I, I can't do this. And so we would affirm what I believe is the biblical worldview that abortion is a type of unlawful killing. I mean, that can be confusing because we have laws that allow it, right? But we would say it goes against God's moral law. Exodus twenty-one twenty-two says, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose, and he pays as the judge determines. But if there is harm, harm to the child is what it's talking about, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It goes on. In detail, so the idea is that uh, if there's a fight uh, and the baby comes early, then there should be a fine. If the baby's okay, right, premature birth, but if the baby dies or if there's harm, then there is punishment that goes along with that. It's considered a human life, and so most people would cite that as as a as a case saying, yeah, the Bible recognizes babies as human beings. And there's a bunch of other verses. Psalm 139 is a helpful one as well that just talks about how God is like knitting that child together in the mother's womb. He works through the, the birth and gestation process, putting together human life. And so Christians traditionally uh, would agree that then abortion, according to God's law, is murder. And we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't take that step. Now, one of the things that we want to do is we look at the Ten Commandments this might sound crazy, we want to feel guilty. So on the one hand, I just want to recognize, I know statistically a lot of people here have have had an abortion or been involved in an abortion. And I want to say, first of all, we would say that that was wrong. As as we'll get into in a, a little bit, we would say that Jesus says we're all guilty of murder to some degree. And so specifically with abortion, I just want you to understand that because of the cross of Christ, we have forgiveness. And so for any sin no matter what it is, we would say we can trust that Jesus forgives us for that sin. Uh, my wife and I have gotten to help, and I think several people of the church have gotten to help with a retreat that Hope Pregnancy Center runs called Rachel's Vineyard. And I would strongly recommend that to you if you've been involved, if you've had an abortion or you've, uh, as a, a man, encouraged an abortion or been a part of that. It's a great weekend healing process that helps you to kind of make sense of it, find grace in Jesus, and and put that to rest in your life. So I encourage you to consider that. You can contact Hope Pregnancy Center for more information about that. Um, But again, we would put that in the category of a kind of murder, right? There's just straight up what we consider traditional murder, there's manslaughter, there's euthanasia, uh, and then abortion. Now, what do we do with that? One of the things that we try to uh, encourage at our church is that we, we don't just complain against a sin. We don't just yell at people and say, hey, that's a sin, but we actually try to help people. And so I want to recommend two ministries to you. Conservatives are, are often characterized as the people that point fingers and judge and say, that's a sin, you shouldn't do that, but they don't do anything to help people. And so I would hope, my prayer is that our church would model what it looks like to show the mercy of Jesus and meet people in their need, in their place of struggle. So two ministries. One is Hope Pregnancy Center that I already mentioned, We have brochures in the back. I recommend that you grab one of those brochures. They come alongside women that are considering abortion, give them ultrasounds, give them medical support, help them if they want to put the child up for adoption or help them if they want to keep the child, help them materially support that child. Our church gives funds to this so that we can help people in those difficult places. Uh, And then Foster Love Bell County, that's another one. It's a network of churches that come together to support foster kids. James says very clearly, true religion is to care for the orphan and the widow, not to just talk about this is a sin and that is a sin, but actually take steps tangibly to help people. So again, that brochure also is available in the back. It has uh, particular ways that you can help foster kids um, and orphans because a lot of us think, well, I can't. Uh, my family's not ready to adopt a child or keep a foster child, so I can't be involved at all. But this brochure gives you lots of other ways you can be involved. You can take other steps to support those that are doing that and to help out with the, the broader foster care needs in Bell County. So I encourage you to grab those. Um, And I just want to ask real quickly, in this service, do we have folks that volunteer or work for Hope Pregnancy Center that I could send you to talk to them? Not in this service. Okay, we have them in different services. Oh, yeah, over here. Okay, raise your hand. Big? Okay, sorry, I didn't ask you ahead of time. Uh, But you can see her, you can see Anthony. Okay, anybody else? And then Foster, Love, Bell County, anybody served with them? Not in this service. Okay, we have a Sunday school class that is meeting right now at 1045 called the Foster and Adopt Ministry class. So if you wanted to join that class, it'd be another way to get more involved in the Foster and Adoption Network in this area. So grab those brochures. Those brochures are in the back. You can get more information. And again, we can be those that that love and serve instead of just complaining. Instead of just speaking the law, we serve and show God's grace for those who struggle. Now, the next thing that we wanna see then is how how are we all guilty, right? Some of you might say, well, I didn't do those four things, so I'm not guilty. Um, But Jesus says... You're guilty. Jesus says you're guilty. The heart battle of murder. So the commandment is do not murder. In Matthew 5.21, Jesus says this. You've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So Jesus' standard is not just, have you killed someone? Did you take an ax and get, you know? No, he's saying, do you hate people? Do you insult people? I'm gonna, I'm gonna read it again because it's a tough one. And like I said, part of my goal today is for us all to feel guilty, okay? <laughs> Me too. I say... That everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It's not just murder. The heart battle is our anger, the anger in our heart. Everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Um, so I just wanted to feel that for a minute. And then here's a little maybe comedic relief. This is what it often looks like. The eye roll, right? Disgust. That feeling of disgust. You make me sick, right? That feeling you have. And a lot of us are good religious people and we're uptight enough that we don't say it out loud. We just say it in our heart, right? And God says we're guilty, we're under judgment for the way that we hate our brother. And we've got we've to feel that. Like, we've got to wrestle with that, our disgust with other people. Like, I can't believe you did that. And you know what goes along with the you disgust me and I can't believe you did that? Automatically, you're saying, I would never do that. I am so holy. I don't do that. Well, yeah, I've got these other sins, but don't look at those. I would never do that, right? And there's this judgmentalism. We, we have to judge right and wrong, right? We're looking at the Ten Commandments because this is God's moral requirements of us, right? We're, we're trying to understand, what does God require of me? What does he ask of me? And so we've got to make judgments of, well, this is right and this is wrong. We've got to make those kinds of judgments. But we can't be judgmental people that are constantly insulting and being angry with our brother. I think we, in this room, have to be especially careful, right? Just knowing demographics, I've studied it enough to know we have more conservative than liberal people generally in this room know a lot of you. I know how the demographics in the Bible Belt skew, and evangelical Christians typically are more conservative than liberal. Uh, and there's been some really interesting psychological research done on conservatives and liberals that I want to share with you. Um, Jonathan Haidt is a researcher. H-A-I-D-T is how his name is spelled, so that would be ironic, right, if his name in <laughs> hate. I didn't even think about that until I just said it. Um, Jonathan Haidt has done a lot of interesting research on this subject. So he's a guy that, you know, I think was kind of your typical liberal academic um, that that had disgust at conservatives and how judgmental they were, which is ironic, right? We judge each other for being judgmental. Um, And so he started researching them, and he found that conservative people have a higher instance of disgust. It's a part of conservative people's personality. And what he found is this has a very important role in society think about it think about your mom being disgusted if you go to the bathroom and don't wash your hands before you eat that's a good thing right like you want to be disgusted at these things and so the the instance of disgust among conservative people is a glue that holds societies together and so he's actually found through his research he became much more uh, sympathetic towards conservative people right and he's been arguing some of his research for you know kind of this middle ground that conservatives and liberals wouldn't hate each other so much but would learn from each other because what he finds is there's this um, thing that societies need of taking risk and being open-minded and trying new things. Liberals tend to be better at that. And this other thing that where you need to protect boundaries, you need to wash your hands, you need to not let germs take over and have you know, your whole camp corrupted with a disease. Um, so disgust and open-mindedness are actually important things that we need from each other. I just want to press you a little bit saying I just know the demographic, demographics enough to know that there are more people in here that, that have disgust issues, right? You just tend to think that dirty people, broken people, sinful people are disgusting. And we need to be careful about that. Again, it's a really, really good way to keep your kitchen clean and your bathroom clean. It's a, it's a helpful thing. But it's not good for loving people. And the model we get from Jesus is he loves people. Think about the Gospels, and if you haven't read them, I encourage you to just go read them for yourselves. Don't just take my word for it, but read the Gospel stories of Jesus. People that were discussing lepers whose skin was falling off, he had no problem with being near them, with talking to them, with touching them, and healing them. Jesus wasn't afraid of the germs getting on him. So, of course, like I said, disgust helps to keep us clean, to keep us safe, doctors take take common sense precautions, right? Doctors wear gloves. There's all kinds of things that are commonsensical and good, and you see that even in the Hebrew legislation, right? In the law, they had all kinds of laws about cleanliness and how important that was to keep them alive, but we we can't make that everything. We can't make that everything because that can quickly turn into anger and hate and judgmentalism, disgust with people. We need to be disgusted with sin, but not disgusted with people, right? Disgusted with germs, but we need to somehow approach people and love people and serve people and not be afraid of their cooties getting on us, right? And so we need to, we need to look like Jesus. And I have uh, something that I think is really, I'll just kind of lay out a couple of, I guess, positives that are the opposite of disgust that are helpful. One, I mentioned last week with MLK Day on Monday, MLK is known for something called personalism. So it's a theological idea that you treat every person individually with dignity and respect because they're made in the image of God. So Genesis 9 says that's why you don't murder people. The rest of the Bible says that's why you love and serve people. You show dignity to people because they're made in the image of God. It doesn't matter if their habits are a little unclean or disgust you or they talk in a weird way or they come from a different place. They're a person made in the image of God, and you have to honor them and show dignity to them. So that's personalism. Another one that I would say is just a helpful positive that we should try to practice is just trying to get to know and love people that are different than you, right? I would call this gospel-centered diversity. Now, we can't just kind of magically be diverse and be this you know, perfect ratio of every kind of person loved and served and all getting along, but, but you can love one more person that's not like you. So I'd ask you to pray about that. Like, who's, who's the next person that I could build a relationship with that's not like me, that says things different than me, that doesn't think like me, that I struggle with, we, as God's people, should be sent out people. Jesus told his disciples, just as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. We should be going people. We should be sent people that cross these boundaries, that, that cross our neighbor's yard and make friends, right? That cross the cubicle and make friends with that person that drives you crazy, right? So we want to take next steps. Again, it's not just perfect abstract diversity. It's a gospel center. Jesus loves me, so I'm going to love this weird person, Right? Um, And now they're going to be suspicious this week if they're in this room. So you might be careful about that. Like, oh, I'm your weird person, huh? Okay. Um, The last one, this is the hardest one. It's pray for your enemies. So I was saying, you know, love that person that's not like you. This is harder. Who's your enemy? Who's the person that's really driving you crazy? It's making your life miserable? Will you start praying for them? And will you pray specifically for their well-being And pray specifically that God would show you concrete ways to serve and love them. Will you do that this week? Say, Jesus, I know you served me while I was yet a sinner. You died for me. So will you enable me to do that for my enemies or for my enemy? Show me how to love them and not to hate them. Um, Now, your answer should be if you're spiritually honest, okay, Dave, can't do that, right? You should just say, no, I can't. I tried, they're too hard. So, I want to take you to an example of Jesus. An example of Jesus I think is really helpful. Jesus is amazing because he was fully God, but he was also fully man. And so, when we look at Jesus, we see an example of what it looks like to be a person depending by faith on his heavenly Father. So, if you look at John 13, I'm going to summarize it for you, but encourage you to go look at the story later. John 13 is the famous passage where he washes his disciples' feet. And right before Jesus washes his disciples' feet, which just to clarify culturally, was one of the most disgusting jobs in the ancient world. Slaves typically did it. You had to get down on your hands and knees with people's smelly feet. And we just don't even understand how dirty feet were in this culture, right? Like they had dirt roads. They didn't wear shoes and socks. They didn't have sewage. So you know what the roads were also? Sewage. And so you were getting down on your hands and knees and washing that off of people's smelly feet. So when Jesus takes that disgusting job to serve and love other people, it says this in John 13, 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, washed his disciples' feet. So it says, Jesus knew the Father had given all things into his hands, He knew that he came from God. He knew that he was going back to God. This is exactly the opposite of how we think it would work, right? We tend to think, well, if I really thought I was disgusting, then maybe I'd do a disgusting job, but I'm too good for that. Jesus says, I'm so good. I'm so loved. I'm so secure in the Father's love for me. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. I have all things in Christ, so I can serve others. I can get on my hands and feet, and I can serve others the more we grow in believing and trusting and knowing who God is to us, the more we'll able, be able to serve other people, the more we'll be able to, to love our enemies, to do those, those dirty jobs, to fight the disgust in our heart, to fight that heart battle of murder. So this last passage, that, that's kind of a preview of how that starts, but the last part is the cure for murder. And I, wanna, um, I just wanna remind you of the first sermon that the apostles preached in the book of Acts. The cure for murder. Uh, Peter gave us this sermon in Acts chapter two. Peter said that we are the ones responsible for what happened to Jesus. Says in Acts chapter two, verse 23, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now that should blow your minds. This was according to God's plan. And then he says, you crucified him. You killed him by the hands of lawless men. So now, to be fair, Jesus is speaking specifically to these Jewish people that were there in that time, that were a part of the crowd and the rabble that encouraged this to happen. But the New Testament has a broader picture that says, you know what? That's true for all of us. It was our sins that created this need for his death. And so we're told not to murder. We're told not to do lawless killing. And then Peter says, you know what? You lawlessly killed Jesus. The greatest sin that ever took place in the history of the world, God took that greatest sin, that murder, and he turned it so that our murder, our heart disgust, was absorbed on Jesus. The wrath of God was poured out. On Jesus Jesus died for us, and it's beautiful where Peter goes with the sermon. He says, you killed him. You murdered him. God raised him up. So that's basically the gospel. We murdered Jesus, and God resurrected Jesus. It says God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so the Bible says the cure for murder is that Jesus was murdered for us. That's the cure. Jesus took our place. And the more we believe that, the more we know that, the more we can then look like Jesus, knowing where we come from, knowing that we're going to the Father, knowing that we're secure in him. And that enables us, that frees us then to get on our hands and knees to serve others in difficult jobs. The first murder in the Bible was Cain murdering Abel. This is in the book of Genesis. It's very early on. And in this murder, there's a lot of really interesting things going on here. The Bible draws on this throughout the New Testament. It keeps quoting and keeps going back to the story. So I'd really encourage you to read the story, get to know the story. It's like a, it's one of these bedrock stories, right? And Genesis chapter four, it's a really important one in the history of the Bible. And John Bloom does a good job of showing the contrast between the murder of Abel by his brother and the murder of Jesus, And he's drawing on Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 makes the comparison first. And so John Bloom is kind of uh, explaining this comparison. John says, in the story, the story of Cain and Abel, we'd rather see ourselves as Abel, but we are all Cain. We'd rather see ourselves as Abel, right? The martyr, but we're all Cain. We were at one time cursed, hostile to God and alienated from him. Abel, the first martyr of the faith, Is a foreshadowing of our Lord Jesus, whose, and this is the Hebrews quote, his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. His blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. For though Abel's innocent blood cried out for justice against sin, Jesus' innocent blood cried out for mercy for sinners. See the difference? The first murder was a senseless act. Cain said, Am I my brother's keeper? after he just murdered his brother? And the answer is yes. Yes, you are. The blood of Abel cries out for justice. The blood of Jesus cries out for mercy for sinners. Jesus' blood covers our sin and cleanses us. And so the the cure for murder is the murder of Jesus. And I want you to see that the more we believe that, the more you own that, the more you see that there's something really broken in your own heart, but Jesus fixed it through his death on the cross for you, the more you trust that, the more you'll be like Jesus. Knowing knowing the secure relationship you have with the Father, feeling free to make the most of this time that you have to serve others, to love others, to preserve life, instead of taking from others because you're insecure in yourself, you can give to others because you know that Jesus gave to you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us so much you gave your son. The most terrible injustice in human history was the murder of Jesus. The only truly innocent death. So God, we throw ourselves at your mercy. We thank you that we don't have to stay in a state of guilt that we don't have to live with this heaviness on our shoulders, but you placed it on Jesus' shoulders, and so we can be free. I pray that that would would change us, that would transform us, that we would then be the kinds of people that impact our community, showing love to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.